Hey there everyone and welcome back to MedTalks. My name is Saho Nichani and I'm currently a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. This episode is part of the finals countdown series where we are providing medical students, in other words the future of our NHS, with short, succinct and super useful revision talks for upcoming exams and beyond. We're currently working our way through the gastrointestinal tract and so far we've had episodes on gastroenteritis, C. difficulitis and gastroesophageal reflux disease which are all available across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google. We'd really appreciate if you could leave a review on the Apple Podcast platform to let us know how you're finding these revision episodes. Now before we get into this episode, I'd just like to take a moment to talk about the sponsors and they are Wesleyan. Wesleyan is a company that was set up way back in 1841 and they provide tailored financial advice and products to multiple professional groups including doctors, dentists and teachers. I'd like to just touch on Wesleyan's latest product project called The Next Step. The Next Step is born from the Wesleyan tradition of giving back. Built in collaboration with final year students, The Next Step brings together some of the brightest sparks in medicine for live events, workshops, exam resources, content and podcasts to make the step into F1 a little easier. They address subject matter you didn't know you needed to know. So go on over and follow them on Instagram by searching The Wes Next Step or Facebook by searching The Next Step hyphen Wesleyan or visit their website by entering thenextstep.wesleyan.co.uk Right then, let's get back to the episode. So today I'm going to be covering celiac disease. So let's get started. Celiac disease is an autoimmune inflammatory condition mainly of the small intestine, where gluten and other proteins cause an immune-mediated reaction in individuals who are genetically susceptible. And this ultimately causes malabsorption of nutrients from our diet. In terms of genetics, HLA, that's human leukocyte antigen, DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 are most heavily linked to celiac disease. And it is thought to have a prevalence of around 1 in 100 people within the UK. Typical age for patients with celiac disease, well, it could be any age, but it peaks in infancy. And also there's another peak between 50 and 60 years old. There's a 10% prevalence in first degree relatives and a 30% relative risk for siblings. In terms of the pathophysiology of celiac disease, so essentially exposure of the body to gluten cause, triggers an immune reaction and it causes the production of autoantibodies which then specifically target the epithelial cells within the small intestine and this essentially is what causes the damage and leads to the symptoms that I'll go on to talk about now. So how does celiac disease present? Well the symptoms can be variable, many people can be asymptomatic but the classic ones include gastrointestinal problems such as diarrhea, abdominal distension, abdominal cramping and bloating, malabsorption of dietary nutrients, reduced appetite, and in children in particular, a failure to thrive. So that's essentially a failure to gain weight as per normal. Signs to look out for are pale, loose or greasy stools, and this is called steatorrhea, and it looks like they're floating within the pan. 
weight loss, and failure to thrive. Celiac disease can present at any age. Adults with a subtle form of the disease may just have fatigue and or anemia. They have a reduced ability to absorb nutrients, minerals, and fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. There's a malabsorption of carbohydrates, which can lead to weight loss, failure to thrive, and fatigue. Anemia may occur because of iron malabsorption, B12, and folic acid. And there are dermatological manifestations. So dermatitis herpetiformis is the classical skin manifestation. And this presents as very red, ex extremely itchy papules and vesicles on normal or reddened skin. And they, these lesions most commonly appear on the scalp, the shoulders, buttocks, elbows and the knees. And they usually appear in groups or clusters. And the blisters are often eroded and crusted due to immediate scratching. So, how do we diagnose patients with celiac disease? Well, NICE have suggested to offer serological testing for celiac disease to those people who present with any of the following. So, persistent unexplained abdominal or gastrointestinal symptoms, faltering growth, prolonged fatigue, unexplained weight loss, severe or persistent mouth ulcers, unexplained iron, vitamin B12 or folate deficiency, type 1 diabetes at diagnosis, and autoimmune thyroid disease at diagnosis. And the reason for this is that autoimmune conditions commonly occur together, and also irritable bowel syndrome in adults, and first degree relatives of people with celiac disease. Um, and I suggest that we should consider serological testing for celiac disease in people with any of the following. So metabolic bone disorders such as reduced bone mineral density or osteomalacia, unexplained neurological symptoms so peripheral neuropathy or ataxia and this may be secondary to the B12 deficiency, unexplained subfertility or recurrent miscarriage, persistently raised liver enzymes with unknown cause, dental enamel defects, Down syndrome and Turner syndrome because celiac disease may be a feature of these syndromes. So, how do we then diagnose it? Well, the first important consideration is if the patient is on a gluten-containing diet. They must be on one in order for the diagnosis to be made. The patient should not start a gluten-free diet until the diagnosis has been confirmed by a specialist. So, firstly, Gluten-containing diet is essential for the diagnosis. And that for those people who are following a normal diet containing gluten, they should be advised to eat some gluten in more than one meal every day for at least six weeks before testing. Next, let's think about some antibodies. So the antibodies specific for celiac disease are tissue transglutaminase type 2 antibodies, including the endomesial antibodies, and antibodies against the deaminated forms of gliadin peptides. The gliadin peptides form parts of the gluten. So tissue transglutaminase is the most comprehensively studied transglutaminase, and it's best known for its link with celiac disease, where it was first associated with this condition in 1997, when the enzyme was found to be the antigen that's recognized by the antibodies specific to celiac disease. So anti-transglutaminase antibodies, they form as a result of gluten sensitivity. So NICE recommends for suspected celiac disease in young people and adults, the total IgA 
and IgA tissue transglutaminase, so TTG is the first choice. If IgA TTG is weakly positive, then we should look at the IgA endomesial antibodies. And we should consider using the IgG endomesial antibodies or IgG deaminated forms of gliadin peptides or IgG TTG if the IgA is deficient. For suspected celiac disease in children, the total IgA and IgA transglutaminase antibodies is the first choice. In actual fact, the IgA anti-endomesial antibodies are the most specific test for celiac disease. But So they're more sensitive, but the TTG antibodies are more sensitive but slightly less specific than the anti-endomesial. But anti-TTG is readily automated and so this is used as the screening test. So HLA-DQ2 and DQ8 testing should only be used in the diagnosis of celiac disease in specialist settings. So children who are not having a biopsy or people who have already had limited gluten ingestion and chose not to have a gluten challenge. In terms of other blood tests, which are not diagnostic but also important, a full blood count may show anemia in 50%. It may also show iron and folate deficiencies and hypersegmented neutrophils due to the folate and B12 deficiency. Secondly, LFT, so liver function tests, may show tra elevated transaminase, which normalize with a gluten-free diet. And if there is no normalization, then other alternative diagnoses should be considered, such as autoimmune hepatitis, primary sclerosing cholangitis. So those are the blood tests. Now we need to do some more definitive and invasive investigations. So that would be a biopsy. So typically it's a duodenal biopsy, but we can also do a jejunal biopsy. And this is still needed to diagnose celiac disease. And we take biopsies from the duodenum or the jejunum because these are the areas within the small intestine that are most typically affected in celiac disease. Patients need to stay on gluten diets until after the biopsy. And this is normally obtained via an upper GI endoscopy. And the histology is usually the following. So firstly, there is an increased density of intraepithelial lymphocytes. So the lymphocytes are the white blood cells in the immune system. And more than 25 intraepithelial lymphocytes per 100 epithelial cells is significant. So the epithelial cells are the ones that are lining the intestine and acting as a barrier between the inside and outside of the body. Secondly, there's crypt hyperplasia with decreased villi to crypt ratio. So the crypts are the grooves, grooves between the villi, and these are the small finger-like projections that line the intestine and promote nutrient, nutrient absorption. So crypt hyperplasia is when the grooves are elongated compared to the normal intestinal lining, which has short crypts. And then there's blunted or atrophic villi. So this is shrinking and flattening of the villi due to repeated gluten exposure. Then there's also mononuclear cell infiltration in the lamina propria. So the lamina propria is a thin layer of loose connective tissue, which with the epithelium forms a mucosa, and this stops pathogens from entering the body. So those are some of the findings that a, bi a biopsy may pick up. Now I'd like to move on to the management of celiac disease. And the management is quite simple. Essentially, it's lifelong, strict, gluten-free diet. This is the only known treatment with, effect, with known effectiveness. And a rapid gluten-free diet will improve the clinical presentation. So no wheat, 
barley, rye, or any food which may contain gluten. So cakes or pie or bread. So symptoms will resolve and the antibodies will also normalize. Now let's think about how we're going to monitor patients with celiac disease. So patients with celiac disease should be offered an annual review. And during this review, we should measure their weight, their height, review any of their symptoms, consider the need for assessment of the diet and adherence to the gluten-free diet, and consider the need for any specialist dietetic and nutritional advice. Finally, I'd just like to touch on the complications of celiac disease, some of which we've already touched on. The main one, which is the most obvious one, is malabsorption, which can lead to nutritional deficiencies. So deficiencies in vitamins such as D, B12, iron and folate, osteoporosis. There is a type of lymphoma called enteropathy-associated T-cell lymphoma, which is linked with celiac disease. And this should be suspected if there are refractory symptoms despite adopting a gluten-free diet or ongoing weight loss. There is a risk of other malignancies, including gastric, esophageal, bladder and breast. And it can cause, if untreated, neuropathies and myopathies. Okay guys, I think I'll bring the episode to an end here. Today we've covered everything you need to know about celiac disease. We've talked about what celiac disease is, how it occurs, how patients with celiac disease may present, how we would diagnose it, how we'd manage it, and then the complications. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and found it useful. As always, please remember to give us your feedback, and the best way to do that is to leave a comment on the Apple Podcast platform. Share these episodes with your friends and your peers who may also find them useful, and you can check out all of our other episodes in both the gastroenterology and also the other sections part of the finals countdown series, which are all available completely for free on on any any podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google. You can check out our social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, by just searching MedTalks for more regular updates. And if you have any questions about any of these episodes or you want to get involved in some of these podcasts, just feel free to message us on these social media platforms. Alternatively, you can email us and our email address is hellomedtalks gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. All the best with your revision and stay tuned for the upcoming episodes. Goodbye.